see you. It's great to see you guys. Welcome to Coastline. Barely. <laughs> Barely. Sure. Take your time. Please don't hurry. <laughs> it's only knee surgery. Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Coastline. My name is Sean Hurley. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I love watching you guys say hello to one another, to greet one another. It's always uh, fun to take all of that energy and direct it at the sermon right now. So it's good to see you guys. Welcome. Uh, glad that you made it. A few weeks ago, this is back when my son Liam still had the Cadillac, he was driving around town and he, he told, gave me a call and said, I've got a flat tire. And, and again, this is one of a billion things that happened to this car. So it was very normal. We got it towed to a place where they could repair the tire. Got back home. When I got home, Melinda was waiting there for me. And she said, I want you to see something. And she showed me her hand. And inside of her hand was about 40 nails and screws and bolts. And she said, these things were all in our driveway. Scattered there. It was crazy to see because you started thinking like maybe somebody like a workman or a work truck came by and just dropped them, but they were very located right there in our driveway. Not in Garrick's driveway, nowhere else's, but just in ours. So we collected them, kind of watched it, and that was partly what had happened to Liam's car. And so we went on with our life, but a, a week later it happened again. And then a week later it happened again. And it's happened probably about five or six times. Now, every time it happens, I take a picture of it just because it's so random and it's so strange that this thing just keeps on happening just right in our driveway. But they had changed. They quit throwing screws or whoever it was, and it started becoming dog poop. And so this now is the side of my house. And the first thing I thought was someone really doesn't like Melinda. And it became clear, okay, someone doesn't like us. Who could it be? What has happened? And so you begin questioning the kids, like, chap, did you start kissing a girl? Or did you stop kissing a girl? What happened? Like, Colin, how much smack have you been talking on the football field? And you start thinking, do I know anybody who has a history of handling dog poop? Which maybe is a strange but oddly relevant question here in 2023 in the South Bay. And so you just start thinking, what on earth could possibly be happening? But one of the things you kind of came to realize is that somehow we have developed an enemy and they are throwing stuff at our house. Now when I tell you this story, chances are if you're like any of my friends, the first thing you begin thinking through is you know what you should do. You know what I would do, and I've had people tell me you should get a ring camera, you should get an animal wildlife camera, I would hide in the bushes. You could do any of those things, and you're probably already playing through those scenarios in your head about what you would do. What I want you to know is I've thought about all of those things, and I've done none of them. I haven't done one of them, and I haven't done them on purpose. And part of it is that I don't want to care that much. I'm really cautious about what caring that much about this just might do to me. Uh, I spent a lot of 2020 really angry about a lot of different things that are happening in my life. And it took a long time for me to kind of learn to let that go. I don't know about you, but yeah, like there's something about anger for me. It feels good. 
It feels really active. It feels like I'm doing something with it. I get to take someone in my mind and hold them up before God and just hold and just tell God about all their flaws, all their weaknesses, all the things that make them frustrating and annoying. And it takes me out of the place of feeling like a victim and it makes me feel strong again. Anger can feel so cathartic and it can feel so good to us. And I found that over the course of time that my own anger became addicting that I love to just nurse my wounds and fuel them and to kind of embrace it. And I'm willing to bet some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because that's been your story. You've been that angry about something in the past as well. And I came to believe that for myself this was something that was going to be fundamentally toxic to my soul. And that I had to, had to, had to process it, and I couldn't allow it to keep going. And so with a lot of therapy and a lot of work, I spent a lot of time before the Lord opening up my hands and giving my anger over to him again and again and again and asking him to heal it and to take it away. And so for me, as I live currently in a world of occasional droppings of dog poop or of screws, I've decided that I would rather pick them up every morning than to begin walking down that pathway of anger again. I'm afraid that if I become the guy with the cameras outside or the guy with the hose or the guy who's always looking around, if I allow myself to lean into that, it will take me back into a place that was really bad for me and I would rather never do that again. Um, And I would rather grant the person who's doing it the anonymity than to have to kind of hold them in my my heart like that and to be angry again. Um, Obviously, this comes with some weight for myself. Um, There's a recognition that someone is angry about something. They feel hurt or betrayed or there's something that we have done. And so every time this happens, it gives me a chance, rather than fueling my own anger back towards them, but to instead hold them before the Lord and say, there is something here that I don't know how to fix, God. They are anonymous, but I give them again to you, and you've got to show me what I've done or what we've done that has brought this about. And it gives me a chance to sharpen my own life. We're in the book of Esther, and it's been this really interesting book. I hope you're enjoying it, and we're calling it Learning to Trust the Unseen God. And one of the things about it is it gives us a chance to look at these characters, go through the most tumultuous chapter of their lives as everything changes around them. At this point, you largely know all of the main characters, but you haven't really gotten to access the plot yet. But today, the plot is finally going to come into focus for the book of Esther. Today, we're going to take a look at the lives and the stories of two men, one named Mordecai, who you've already met, and the other one named Haman. And these two men hate one another. And this hate that they have for one another is going to begin to spiral out of control. And it's going to affect and it's going to infect their communities and the entire world around them. Uh, As we wrestle with the story today, one of the things I want to ask us and to put in front of each and every one of us is where are there relationships in your life where there is tension, where there is pain, and where there is anger? Where is there disappointment and where is there hurt? Because what I've come to really believe is that oftentimes we move past our anger, past our hurt, past our disappointments, but we never actually resolve them. And as a result, they become this thing that comes around again and again in our lives. And we're going to see the devastating effects from Mordecai and Haman about letting your life be defined about who you don't like or who you hate. 
So we'll be in Esther chapter 3 today. I'll be having a lot of the scriptures on the side screen, but if you want to follow along, you can open up your Bibles. It's a kind of tricky book to find. If you find the book of Job, just go to the left. It'll be right before that. Uh, Let me pray, and then we're going to jump in. Lord, Lord, with a sermon like this, we open up the word and we do our best to apply it, but God, ultimately the real preaching happens between your spirit and every human heart. And so God, today I want to ask that you would kind of sift through the emotions and the heart of people, dig into what's kind of happening there, and God, that you'd help them process their own hurts, disappointments, the places of pain in their life, and that God, you'd help them to slowly open up their hands on those places and to release it and to give it to you. God, would you teach us from the life and the mistakes and the successes of Mordecai and Esther today, and may we grow as we see them grow in the story. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. So just doing a quick recap for you in case you have not been here or it's been a full week since the last time you heard the sermon. Uh, in Esther chapter 1, we are introduced to King Xerxes, who is the king of Persia. He is leading the Persian Empire at this time, which is most likely the largest empire that the world has ever known. He is this absolutely egotistical and debauched king. In fact, in almost every passage we find in the book of Esther, he is drinking, he is drunk, he's getting drunk. That is a constant theme that we see about his life. And it leads to this really erratic behavior that makes him dangerous and completely unsafe to be around. At the end of Esther chapter 1, he's trying to prove the beauty of the Persian Empire to his officials. And to really make his point, he asks for his wife to come out and be ogled by them. And basically after a seven-day binge of drinking, she refuses. And as a result of her refusing, he banishes her from the kingdom and takes her crown away. And then in Esther chapter 2, he begins a search for a new queen who will come and to take over her place. He does this by summoning every beautiful virgin from across his vast empire and inviting them into his bed. An invitation is definitely not a strong enough word. By compelling them into his bed and the one who pleases him the most, she will become his queen. In this big kind of collection of these virgins is a young girl named Hadessa. She is a Jew, and her uncle works for Xerxes, and he commands her to keep her Jewish identity silent. He believes that in some way it will make her vulnerable, it will make her a victim, it will not go well for her. And so she hides her identity, and she is chosen by Xerxes to become the new queen of Persia. That is where we have been so far. Now, Between Esther 2 and chapter 3, it has been five years. Esther has grown. She is no longer this young, innocent, naive girl. She is much more now the established queen of Persia that we're going to know her for the rest of the story. She has grown up. And yet there's a moment that's about to happen in the story that's going to change everything. And you know this sort of moment because we see it in film all the time. Do you remember in Indiana Jones, that moment where he removes a statue And suddenly this gigantic stone comes rolling down that just destroys everything in front of it. That's this moment right here. Remember in the movie Frozen, Elsa is trying to explain to her sister why she's got to wear gloves all the time. And when her sister finally takes her gloves off, she moves her hand and she shoots icicles across the room. And in this moment, every single thing is going to change in her life. If you remember in... um, Lord of the Rings, 
There's a moment where Boromir tries to take the ring from Frodo. And when he's finished, when he cannot do it, he looks at, at the camera and says, what have I done? That what have I done moment, that is what is about to happen to Mordecai and with the decision that he's going to make. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, basically her father, he has a rival within the palace government, and that rival's name is Haman. Now, I want to kind of profile these two people for you. Uh, We know a few things about Mordecai that are important that are going to help us understand exactly who he is. Esther 2.5 says this, Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, we would read this, and we do read this, and I just did read this, and it meant nothing to us. But you have to know to the original audience, when they hear these names read, they knew exactly what it meant about Mordecai. What it means is that Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. That is the line that he comes from. King Saul, the way I like to think about him, is call him the almost king. Meaning that he is the first king of Israel, and he almost does the right thing every time, but never, never quite. He always messes up just a little. And he's the one that will ultimately be succeeded by King David. Now... In Esther chapter 3, we're also told some information about Mordecai's rival named Haman. This is out of Esther 3, 1 through 3. through three. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadetha the Agagite, elevating, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So we know that he's a son of an Agagite, and we know that as a result of this, that means he's also an Amalekite. Some back history for you. The Amalekites were the first enemies of the Jewish people. This story goes back all the way through 1 Samuel, goes back all the way to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Israel is this group of slaves who've escaped their masters, and as they travel, the Amalekites attack them in the wilderness, and this is a story where Moses has to hold up his staff, and as long as he holds up his staff, Israel wins, but if he lowers it, the Amalekites start to win. In this story, God says, as a result of the Amalekites attacking my people, I promise never-ending hatred against them. God chooses the Amalekites as his enemy. And so when Saul ends up becoming king, the issue of the Amalekites comes into focus again. This is out of 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3. Samuel said to Saul, remember, this is the great, great, great ancestor of Mordecai, I am the one the Lord sent to, sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, Saul, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them and put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, and camels and donkeys. This is the command that God gave to Saul. But look at what Saul does instead. This is Samuel 15, 7 through 11. 
Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, we just heard that name, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep of the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, and everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and he said, I regret that I have ever made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. If that just got really boring for you and you checked out, God commanded Saul, you got to wipe out the Amalekites completely. And instead of doing that, Saul spared Agag the king, and he took all of the plunder for his own wealth. So this is an old story. These are familiar characters. And when we hit Esther chapter 3, we are introduced to Mordecai, an ancestor of Saul, and Haman, the ancestor of uh, Agag. This is a story with a lot of history. And so when this story was read to the original audience, you had to know that when they said that there was a son of Saul and a son of Agag, what they heard was Capulet Montague. Okay? The, you know that there's going to be issues just by who these families are. And that old conflict gets brought into the present when Haman receives this promotion. He has made the second of command here in the entire land of Persia. And King Xerxes forces for everyone to bow when he walks past. But there's a problem, and that is that Mordecai refuses to bow. And we know that the people at the gate ask Mordecai every time, why will you not bow? Why are you doing this? And we're never given an explanation about it. But we know that he does it publicly. We know that he does it before other people. And he is trying to humiliate Haman. And he's trying to make a statement about who Haman is by his own actions. Now, people have tried to understand the actions of Mordecai since they began studying this book. Specifically, the question is, is Mordecai righteous or unrighteous by refusing to bow to Haman? If you're going to try to make the argument that he's righteous in some sort of way, you are saying that as a Jew, it would have been wrong for him to bow before Haman because this would be some sort of worship. This is ultimately what Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go through when they will not bow before the great golden statue that happens there that Nebuchadnezzar builds. Is that what's happening here? It seems that that's probably unlikely because Xerxes claims to be divine. And he's not claiming that Haman's divine. Haman is second in his kingdom, and he's not going to allow people to worship the second command. The worship is only for himself. And we have all of these history books where we know that the Jews would bow to officials in this kind of position of honor. So it's probably not that. It might be that this old blood feud that exists here between these families is what's actually happening. That this old, bitter rivalry between these families and between Jews and between Gentiles, between these two historic enemies, that is what's driving the story here. But in my opinion, the most likely reason why Mordecai will not bow to Haman is simply out of jealousy and rivalry. We are told and we're going to get into this later in the series, that not too long ago, Mordecai had done this great service to the king, and the king had forgotten all about it. 
But here, Haman now is elevated to this important position, and it seems that there had been a time where they had worked together in the palace, and it had been fine. They had both served as officials. They had both kind of worked alongside of each other, likely not enjoying one another, but nonetheless able to do the work. But now that this promotion has happened, Mordecai will not work with him any longer, and he will no longer be polite or even subtle about it. And what you need to know is that the actions of Mordecai make everything so much worse for everybody around him. This is out of Esther 3, 5 through 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, that they were Jews, he scorned the idea of killing of Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. His solution to this dishonor is he's not just going to kill Mordecai, he's going to kill every sort of Jew that still exists in the kingdom of Persia. His plan is genocide. And it really brings us back to 1 Samuel 15. Saul was commanded to wipe out the Amalekites completely, and he didn't, and so they lived to fight another day. But now, an Amalekite, a son of Agag, is going to do to Israel what Saul could not complete. That now the tables are turned, and now he's going to get the revenge that his people have always wanted. Now here's what's interesting. Haman does not have this power himself. He cannot make the decision simply to wipe out the Jews on his own. He needs Xerxes' help. And so he goes to Xerxes with a proposal. This is out of Esther 3, 8 through 9. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. And it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. What Haman says to Xerxes is especially this, is essentially this. That now that I'm in this position, Xerxes, I see something that nobody else has seen. While you've been off invading Greece, your kingdom has been invaded. There are a people who have spread out through every home and every city and every office and in every position of your kingdom, and they are not loyal to you. They have not integrated into your kingdom, and they keep to their own customs and to their own language. They are a defeated people, but they don't act defeated. They act as if they are better than us. And as a result, your kingdom is about to be snatched away from you at any moment if they ever mobilize. So it's better if you kill them, than to ever give them this chance. He makes the request, let me pay for it. He says, I will pay 10,000 talents to destroy them. We know through historical records that the annual budget of Persia at this time is 15,000 talents. So he's willing to front two-thirds of the annual budget of Persia for the privilege of killing the Jews. How is he going to pay for that? He's going to take all of the Jews' money when he kills them, and he's going to allow their money to pay for their own destruction. It's especially cruel. And Xerxes is so concerned, he tells Haman, you know what? I'll pay for it. You can keep your money. And then they sit down, and they begin to drink. This is a constant theme in the book. So what's missing in the story? There's something interesting that's just to point out to you. Xerxes never once says, who are they? 
Who are these people that have invaded? What's their identity? What's their nationality? Who's leading them? He doesn't even care. Although these people are somewhat under his protection, he does not care really at all. He is only thinking of convenience and probably the next drink. And what he does is he gives Haman his signet ring, which allows him to make the decisions with the authority of Xerxes. Now, now this is what is unique. The moment that he gives him this signet ring, he gives him a power that cannot be withdrawn. That every time Haman makes a decision with that ring, that is something that cannot be changed. We see in Esther 119, it says this. Uh, Therefore, this is when Vashti is being set aside. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. These edicts that are made by Haman cannot be changed, cannot be stopped, nobody can get in their way. It's an incredible thing that he's done. And to really point, rub it in Mordecai's face, what it says that Haman does is he grabs two dice, which were called the purr. And he rolls the dice to see the date in which the execution of the Jews will begin. And when he rolls the dice, it comes up with one year from that day. In one year, an edict, well, it says the edict goes out now that in one year, not only can everybody kill a Jew, but everyone must arm themselves to wipe out the Jewish nation, the Jewish people that remain in Persia. And it can never be changed. This is not just the military. This is now every citizen must take arms against these people. And it was in this moment that Mordecai realized that he had made a terrible mistake. Look at Esther 4.1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. His bitter rivalry and his hatred has caused these terrible circumstances for his entire people. And that's Esther 3. Now what on earth does this very lengthy discussion have anything to do with your and my life. First of all, I want to point out this, that in our own lives, unresolved conflicts are oftentimes revisited conflicts. Unresolved conflicts are oftentimes revisited conflicts. Mordecai and Haman's uh, disagreement has history. It has a past. It is built partly upon racial tension between two people, It is built on family tension between two people, and it's built on difficulties in the workplace between two people that have resulted in envy and hatred and disgust. So it is racial, it is about family, and it is about a past at work that they deeply hate one another. And these conflicts may have, for times, gone inactive. They have been dormant. They've been able to work together in some sort of capacity. But, as, but over the course of time, those dormant places of disappointment have become active again. I want you to think about a volcano. That there are seasons for a volcano where it is cool, quiet, you can hike up to it, you could look at it, and it is simply a geographical spot on a map. But deep down underneath there is still all the lava and the magma that is simply inactive. But all it takes is some sort of event to turn that dormant volcano into something active and destructive and terrifying again. 
and so with our hearts. That if you dig deep enough into the disappointments that you have in your heart and life, if you go deep enough, chances are you will still find heat and anger down deep. And with the slightest annoyance, those things can come to the surface again. I think oftentimes, and I said this in the intro, we move past conflicts without ever resolving them, meaning that we just go to bed that night, and the next morning we wake up, and we just pour a cup of coffee, and we move forward. And we do this with people at work. We do this with our spouses. We do this with our kids. We do this with our parents. We do this with everybody in our lives, oftentimes, where we don't take the time to truly resolve things, but instead we just move past them. And so what ends up happening is they go dormant, but not resolved, until eventually something stirs it up and that thing becomes active again in our life. And these unresolved conflicts, they always affect more people than just us. Battles in the boardroom affect every employee. They affect the product quality. They affect the stock price. Conflicts in a marriage affect the children. They affect the neighborhood. It affects churches. It affects every relationship. You see, conflict is never isolated within our own relationships. It always overflows into other places that we don't immediately anticipate when the conflict begins. Conflict harms uh, people, systems, networks in every relationship around us. And I've come to believe that all of our conflicts are never static. They're either building in pressure or we are pouring water on them and extinguishing them. But they're never just being. Because in the give and take of our internal life, we're either slowly moving towards an explosion or we're actively living in the presence of God and allowing his grace to come and wash over us and to wash through us. So my question for you is to think about the relationships where there's tension in your lives and to ask the question, are you just trying to move past them or are you really trying to resolve them? Because the consequences are really high about whatever decision you're making. I I think about the nails in my driveway. Before a nail was ever thrown, there was somebody who was disappointed. There was somebody who was hurt. There was somebody who then was betrayed. They then judged themselves against probably me or my family. And then it moved to hatred. And then it moved to self-justification that this is a right thing to do against someone like us. Do you see the progression that happens right there? And you're always moving on that sort of scale. You're always moving towards that explosion as long as you're moving past and not resolving. So what is the state of your relationships? The second thing I think it's important to point out to you is that there is always a Haman in our lives. There is always an enemy who opposes God's people. This is just the story that we see throughout the entire Old Testament. There is always an enemy who opposes God and his people. David had Saul. Moses had Pharaoh. And Elijah had Jezebel. And these are people who are primarily fighting against God's rule and reign in their life, God's character, and they are not wanting for God to have any place in their life or in the lives of people around them. And as a result, they lash out at people who are loyal to God or who claim him. So part of it is to help you see that this conflict that you might be in isn't just a conflict about you and them. It's a conflict of someone who's fighting against God's people. And at some point, you will have a Haman. Some of you know exactly who that person is. And if you don't praise God, they're coming. 
And they're going to throw nails into your life, and they're going to cheer when you hit them. Sometimes Haman is not a person. Sometimes it is a group of people. Jesus spent his entire ministry struggling against the Pharisees. This was a group of people who fought against him at every turn and every decision that he he made. And there are Christians in the world who face organized resistance from large sections of government or from other religions and undergo persecution and even martyrdom, not at the hands of one person, but at the hands of many. As to help you see that that is part of our story as well. In fact, you and I always face a spiritual battle against spiritual enemies who are trying to oppose what God is doing in our lives. And finally, sometimes there's just a Haman inside of us. Noah, his story is the last thing that we know about him is that he is passed out drunk and naked. Sometimes that Haman is dwelling deep inside of us. Uh, Samson. His entire life is just one mistake after another. There's nobody in the Bible who looks more like Xerxes than Samson. Totally driven by his lusts and by his anger. Sometimes Haman is inside of us. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies. And to live the life of faith, what it means is that we are thrown into a battle where we have personal enemies corporate enemies, spiritual enemies, and an enemy even inside of us. And the answer to the battles that we find ourselves in comes out of, I think, out of Ephesians 6, where it talks about the armor of God. Now, when we, I'm not going to read it for us today because I'm just short on time. But when we see the armor of God, what he's saying is arm yourself in faith and in salvation and in righteousness. But truly what he's asking for us to do is to clothe ourselves in the spirit of God. That we clothe ourselves with the Spirit's armor and let that be our protection against the battles that we face. We see what happens when we become clothed in the Spirit. When Stephen is attacked in Acts, we are told that he is full of the Holy Spirit in that moment. And as a result, he's able to bless these people even as they attack and take his life. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, upon the cross, looks down upon these people and says, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. When you and I become clothed in the Spirit, we're able to treat people as friends, even when they act like our enemies. And finally this, know that God is with you even in the midst of the fiercest attacks that you face. In Psalm 57, David writes about being on the run from his enemy, Saul. He's been running for Saul for years. Saul's been trying to kill him for years. And at this point in Psalm 57, David has nowhere else to run. And so he runs into a cave. There's no escape. There's no way to get away from Saul now. And as he's in the cave, he writes this song. Psalm 57.1. Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wing until the disaster has passed. His refuge is not the cave, his refuge is God. And for you in the conflicts that you're in, your refuge is not getting more power, is not letting out more slander or more gossip, it is not strategizing your way to get ahead, your refuge is always and only God. And the good news is that God is a wonderful place of refuge. This is out of Psalm 57, 6, just down a little bit farther. He says, They spread a net for my feet, and I was bowed down in my distress. But they dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. 
God has the ability of turning the tables so that you can be victorious even when thoroughly attacked. So what can we do? How can we actually bring this to life in our lives? I want to close by just reminding you about how Jesus taught us to pray. When the disciples asked him, how should each and every one of us pray? He said, do so in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. The answer for us, for short accounts, for being able to treat people as friends, even when they're enemies, is to daily be in a place of prayer, of thanking God for the forgiveness he has given us, and then praying for the strength to give it to others. This is what it means to be underneath his kingship. This is what it means to be a part of his kingdom, and this is what it means to help his kingdom grow in the world. Let me pray. Lord, there's so much that we just covered, Lord, and I'm sure that people are, are, are half with me, but Lord, I want to pray that you would help us look at our hearts and see the wounded, damaged places and see the string of names that kind of pass by our eyes, Lord, as we consider the wrongs that we've experienced and the damages and the tension that we have. And we ask, God, that you would help us to pour the cooling water of your spirit on those tensions, on those places of anger and disappointment, that you'd allow us to put the spirit there instead of our own anger, Lord, that you would cool it, that you'd give us the courage to address it, that, God, you'd help us to confess it to you. And, God, we ask that you would heal our hearts so that we could be healers of you in the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.